Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Coming up on today's show, an easing of restrictions at long-term care centers in Alberta. Bit of a surprise, but something people have been looking for for some time. What's going on in Westlock County? We'll get the details on that. And just because you've been vaccinated and you had a good, strong reaction, maybe you didn't feel good for a couple of days, that makes no difference to how your body is responding in terms of building up an immune response. Turns out you could be just fine with no symptoms whatsoever. This new public health order will increase the number of designated support persons who can be part of their loved one's care team in a continuing care facility from two to four people. And it will allow facilities to have small indoor and larger outdoor visitations if residents feel it's safe to do so. Premier Kenny making the announcement yesterday that rules around long-term care facilities are changing in our province. They're being eased up a little bit. As you heard, none of this starts until May 10th, so a couple of weeks before the changes come in. But uh, essentially, more people can be involved in the facility and larger gatherings can be held as well. Uh, the Premier saying he knows there are no risk-free options around this, and this does increase the risk for sure, but he's heard loudly from families that they want to see these changes. To find out exactly how it's being received by the people involved in providing this kind of service to Albertans, we are joined now by Don Harsh, who is the founder and CEO of Exquisicare Senior Living. Good morning, Don. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, I think I, I have uh, I have a family member in long-term care, and I know this is something they've been asking. The question has been, well, we, we've done all the vaccinating of this vulnerable population. We know that they have... Um, for the most part, been fully vaccinated. I think it's about 80% or something like that. So if we did what we were supposed to do and they've been protected, then why not make this move? Is that the kind of thing that you've been hearing from um, your clients over the past several weeks? Yeah, absolutely. We're hearing that. And we're, we're also hearing not only are the residents vaccinated, but a lot of times the designated supportive persons have also been vaccinated. So both individuals are vaccinated and the families are frustrated because they're saying, you know, mom's vaccinated i'm vaccinated why can't i come see her and so our families have been asking this and you know our answer to them is that the government's working hard um we we trust in the process but there needed to be some work done on the government end to come forth with these recommendations and so we were delighted to hear yesterday but there's still some work to be done um we'll get into the work to be done in just a second but first of all and i think a lot of people have these stories and the premier mentioned them yesterday that these people that are in these centers um really, really need this kind of interaction. They need this joy, as the Premier said yesterday. Just tell us what it's been like and, and, and how your clients have been dealing with this and just how hard it has been to be essentially sequestered for some 14, 15 months now. Yeah, you know, it has been, it's been extremely hard on the residents. Now, I will say that Exquisite Care is a, is a private supportive living. So we only have 10 residents per site, very high staffing level. So I would say that our residents, they actually did quite well throughout the pandemic compared to the residents in the larger 200-bed mm-hmm. facilities 
where they were absolutely devastated by lack of staff. Um, and we hear stories, and I'm certainly part of bigger organizations, where you hear stories of residents with almost something to the equivalent of failure to thrive, which is something that you would hear more from, you know, babies. And But now we're seeing that in the elderly, just failure to thrive. They, they lose that will to live. Um, and that's certainly, we hear stories about all over the industry. So as you said, more work to be done. Um, just tell us, with the new rules that are coming in in a couple of weeks, you've got some time to prepare here. Um, how do you think it's going to roll out in your facility? Uh, do, you, do you imagine, uh, you know, like you said, uh, 10 residents per facility, do you imagine a lot of people are going to be just really champing at the bit to get this going? I actually don't, Shay. I think that certainly there's still some fear out there yep. with the risk the risk that is still there. I mean, we're still seeing rises in you know, rising case in the community. So I you know, I suspect my community there's probably gonna be like a sixty forty split. That's my guess, is that sixty percent of our residents and their families are gonna say yes, let us come in and visit. The other forty percent are probably still gonna be cautious. And there's caution around that because vaccines aren't hundred percent. Exactly. And when you have somebody who is in their late 90s or 100s, even if they're vaccinated, if they get COVID, it still could be very, very hard on them. The other big challenge is not, it's around operations. And, you know, the challenge is that our staff have all received their first vaccine, Mm -hmm. but not their second. So they don't have that high level of immunity. And again, at Exquisite Care, we've been very fortunate because we have such dedicated staff. We have such, you know, a really good handle on all the isolation protocols and the PPE that we haven't had any ill effects from the staffing, but there is still a huge risk to the operations. If COVID gets into a site and suddenly you have all the staff isolating, you you still have a very precarious situation where the care could be impacted. So, you know, I feel like there's still going to be some cautious optimism and there's still going to be some hesitancy to go full on with this. And I think it's just balancing risk and reward. And it may be, you know, every site is going to look at this and make their own rules. That's the thing, right? Uh, the province coming out and saying this isn't, uh, you know, e- e- leaving it up to the provider to just sort of decide what risk level they're, they're comfortable with and what kind of precautions they want to put in around um, the slight ease in the number of people that will be entering the facility. It's up to you guys. It is up to us. And, you know, make no mistake, this easement needed to happen. You know, our seniors, they need that connection to their family. And again, it's all about balancing risk. Right. And, and all along, you know, to be really blunt, I, you know, I've had some families that have said, you know, mom's 100. And uh, the reality is she's going to pass away at some point. And do we want her isolated for the last year of her life? And then she passes away a month later. Or do we want to be able to see mom and enjoy that time with her? So those are tough questions. But in the reality, that's that's what families are considering. And so... You know, we're very happy with this. Um, again, most of our designated supportive persons are older as well. So they've also been fully vaccinated. And the public needs to realize that even though these restrictions have been eased a little bit, we're still going to be living under a different circumstance for months and months and months to come, I suspect. So is that the new um, project for you guys over the next couple of weeks to sort of define exactly how this is going to work in your facilities and come up with a framework that people are are happy with they can get that interaction but at the same time you can keep them as safe as possible 
Absolutely. And I think all facilities are going to be doing that. So we need to do a risk assessment. Yeah. Um, talking to our families. Again, we're pretty fortunate that at Squizicare that we have smaller sites and we have very engaged families. We have zero COVID throughout this entire pandemic. And, um, and that's because we were so engaged with our families. They were on board with all of what we were doing. They understood what we were doing and why. And so that's our next project, you know, kind of this morning is to reach out to all of our families through a survey. Where's your risk tolerance? How much do you want in terms of risk? And understanding that, you know, if COVID gets into this site, mm-hmm. even though it may not be as devastating as it was before, there's still going to be consequences. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's a lower risk than it was the last two times we went through this, but you're right, there still is a risk that remains and uh, you guys have done your level best in managing it so far and I'm sure you will going forward. Thanks so much for spending some time with us this morning, Don. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Take care. You bet. That is Don Harsh, who is founder and CEO of Exquisicare Senior Living. West Block County uh, is dealing with uh, it's something it's surprising to me it's kind of disappointing too um, and uh, people living in the area are now calling on officials to step in and, and try and get some resolution to this basically what we're talking about here is a section of crown land that has become a major major concern for living people in uh, for people living in the area and, and wait till you hear what's going on I think you'll understand why they're upset about this John Biro is the Westlaw County Protective Services Manager and he joins us now to uh, let us know exactly what's happening John thanks for joining us this morning I appreciate your time uh, no problem. No, so, no. I have read the media accounts of the situation that you're dealing with out there, but um, just just give us the details. Tell us what what's going on. Where is this area of Crown Land, and and what's happening there? Well, the the area is found uh, just the southern part of our uh, our county line here uh, between uh, Westlaw County, Thornhill County, Sturgeon County. Um, it's a quick access, you know, thirty five forty five minutes from uh, Edmonton. Um, the problems happened well before my time. Uh, it's always been a hot zone. Uh, I've been here since uh, 2008 um, in this uh, position here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had uh, you know multiple fires, uh, well over 16 for, uh, fires in in kind of in this uh, hot area. Right. What we call um, lots of activity with uh, with public. Uh, public activity, recreation, you name it, um, you know, from camping to backcountry, uh, hiking, um, ATVs, and uh, as well as uh, uh, shooting. And we just had a fire here again. Uh, it seems like whenever we have an incident, this really sparks the residents around there. Uh, they've been threatened before by wildfire uh, numerous times. Uh, we've lost structures in the in the past. Um, so every year at this time, springtime, everybody's on on high edge, mm-hmm. and uh, our fire departments are put on high alert. And it's just a matter of time. When you put a lot of people in a certain area, something's bound to happen uh, sooner or later. And we had a fire here April sixth, um, and it was a holdover fire from a, an abandoned campfire on on this public land. Uh, that kind of sparked the people's um in in you know bringing this up again uh in regards to the problems that's happening out there uh with uh, the amount of shooting that's going on out there uh as well as the ATV activity uh the garbage that's coming in and and just being left there so if this has been going on for a long time, obviously you've tried to to get some sort of resolution on this before um but it just it, you know it just continues to get worse is that the situation we're in 
Yeah, it's uh, it's we've had so many fires through there. There's not much for uh, heavy timber uh, standing anymore. Yeah, um, a lot of it is uh, grass um, grass fields, and uh, people are still shooting there. Uh, there, so there's really no backdrop to um, stop the the bullets from flying, um, and uh, you know people are scared to go right, out of yeah. their homes. Um, uh, the shooting starts from 8 a.m. You know, it can go right till half hour after sunset. Um, and then people are just fed up of it. It's, you know, it's a situation, I, I, for a guy like me living in the city all my life and, and not being a gun guy and everything like that, it, it's surprising to me that people can just go up and, and set up basically target ranges. I mean, that's what we're talking about. It's a firing range with, with targets set up and things. And, and it's, you know, from the reports I read, it's used every single day of the year, right? Yeah, and you know, in in the Force Protection Act, uh, the Crown land, you you can discharge a firearm. Um, there is no def- proper definition, I guess, of what they classify target. Okay. Um, and maybe that's what the government needs to do is define, uh, you know, between target and a, and a rifle range. Uh, rifle range is, you know, you go, you buy a membership. It's all controlled. It's got right, yeah. the, the proper barriers there. It's got the proper protection uh, to keep you safe as well as uh, the public that's outside the the, the zone. Um, and what's happening here is they're they're treating it as a as a, a rifle range, and the proper barriers aren't in place. None of the safeguards Obvious. are in place. No, and you know it's not. I'm not blaming everyone. I'm a I'm a hunter. Yeah, I have firearms myself. Um, it just disgraced me when I go out there and see the amount of garbage, like propane tanks, uh, refrigerators. Um, you know, tannerite's banned in our county, and we still hear people discharging um, tannerite. Uh, we've posted it. It's on our website. It's on our. It's on the fire, Alberta Fire Bans website. And these people just have no disregard for uh, some rules that we've. St- placed out we've we when we issue a fire restriction typically the restriction comes on is to minimize um, the possible of something happening and the things that we prohibit are things that has given us issues in the past and we try to eliminate those mm-hmm. right off the bat so i mean the obvious question here is what about enforcement i mean we, when you're dump, dumping garbage and, and using um tannerite and things that you're not supposed to be doing and uh, you know uh there obviously are laws that are being broken and ways to to deal with this whose jurisdiction is it and is there an increased enforcement is that something you're looking at well it's, it's definitely something we're looking at um everything costs money yep. and uh time um we do have very limited resources uh we put a lot of hours in and uh a lot of time where we shouldn't be. Um, and when does it when does it happen? You know, we can. It's a big county. We've got over three thousand square kilometers in our jurisdiction that we have to monitor. Uh, it's pretty tough when we only have uh, you know one peace officer um, to cover that area. And you know, we've got the RCMP also, but they have their their things that they're dealing with. Um, this is one area that is an issue but we've got multiple areas with other different issues and right we just yeah other resources to be everywhere so you can't focus just on this one thing you still got a job to do that's right you know and, and we can go out and talk with these people uh, that are out there they're great a lot of them are great to talk to out there um 
you know, once we leave, I'm not sure what happens afterwards. Right, We're just yeah. hoping they do the proper thing. Is it happening? I don't know. Can we blame them? No, we can't because we don't. We didn't see them do it. Uh, when the stuff is being dumped, it could be dumped in the evenings, in at night. Um, you know, when nobody's around, it's. Uh, it could be any time. When do we be out there? When's the best time? You know, you can sit there for days and sure. not see nothing happening. Yeah, I mean, and obviously, if you are sitting there, they're not going to do the things they shouldn't be doing. Uh, just yeah. quickly, there's residents living adjacent to this crown land who are also very concerned and worried. They don't want to sit outside in the backyard kind of a thing, right? No, and, you know, there's there's buildings in their properties that have been hit by stray bullets. Um, there's, Good Lord. We've got a heavy populated area that's just um, north of this shooting area, uh, and it's uh, Spruce Hills Estates. Um, and... That's kind of the direction that they're they're pointing at. We've had as the largest casings that we've found out there. Um, we had a fire start, and the area of origin was obviously where these casings were found. Uh, they were a, a fifty caliber what casings? Uh, we found ten casings in area of origin, and um, we had a witness that was working. We've got three gravel pits also that are in that vicinity, and workers are out there. We don't know their hours, but they're out there all the time. Yeah. And the witness that was working that day said he heard numerous shots. He said they were a lot louder than your typical shotgun or rifle. Um, And then shortly after, there was smoke coming through the the forest. And we traced it back, and area of origin was where these shells were found. Um, And fifty caliber, you know, they've got a killing range of uh, one to... Uh, one and a half mile, um, or I think it might even be two miles, uh, but they do have a distance of trajectory of, you know, five miles. Good heavens. Uh, so we've got residents that are uh, within the mile range. Uh, where these bullets go to, I don't know. Yeah, and understandably, that would be very concerning if you live downrange. That's right, and these people are. Unbelievable. Uh, they've, got, they've got livestock, they've got uh, kids that are out, uh, you know, on horses. Um, it's a concern, you know, and, and I hunt myself and I don't, when I go target shoot or rifle range, I belong to a rifle range. Uh, I travel a distance and I go for the day and I, at least I know that I'm not putting anyone at risk. I'm doing it at a proper place. Are there gun ranges in Westlock County? There isn't. Um, and I know there was a group of uh, um, residents that were looking at uh, possibly creating one. Right. Um, but it, it, it kind of fell through. All right. Well, we're, we'll follow up on this and uh, and check in with you and see how this summer goes. And I, I think the biggest concern here, John, is the fires, obviously, or something. But it sounds like um, we've got an absolute tragedy just waiting to happen with with people firing uh, into populated areas like that. Yeah, we've had two fires. Um, uh, one was actually uh, again, it was a discharge of a flare. Um, and we were on site, and uh, we had to shut down operations. We had uh, air tankers coming in. Uh, we had helicopters flying. Uh, we had 50 firefighters uh, in the forest fighting fire, and the helicopter noticed uh, a group of guys that were uh, discharging firearms that were close in, in our vicinity. Um, so we had to shut down everything. And, 
you know, the helicopters are running at uh, over three three thousand dollars an hour mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, for their operations, and we sat there for an hour, um, and we couldn't fight fire because we didn't know where these guys were shooting until they were cleared out. So, um, and then just this latest one, this uh, April sixth, um, and that's maybe what sparked up the the public again. Right, yeah. Uh, again, we had a fire within this area, and there's guys out there shooting while we were out there fighting fire. And uh, we had to wait until it was clear for us, safe enough for us to go back in there and fight this fire. Crazy. It's it's just a, it's a mind-boggling situation. Uh, I appreciate you spending some time and fill us in, filling us in on the details, John. Thank you. Sure. Yeah, no, it's... Uh, and like I said, it's it's not... It's not against the, you know, the the firearm owners or, because um, there's a lot of good people. Absolutely, out there. absolutely. Um, and again, I hunt myself. I respect, I respect the lands. And most and, do the overwhelming and, majority do. Yeah, and you know, the worst of it is when things like this happen. It paints the brush on everyone. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And so it's, uh, yeah. We get a remedy. Okay, thank you, John. I appreciate it. You bet. Take care. You've seen it all over social media over the past week or so, as soon as Gen X was opened up to the AstraZeneca vaccine. Everybody posting the fact they've been vaccinated, and then in the days following, posting every little development they experienced. I have headache, I have chills, my arm hurts, on and on and on. And the response when anybody reported any symptoms overwhelmingly has been, oh, that's good, it means it's working. Well, maybe that's not true. That's not necessarily how vaccines work. So let's get a little understanding about this issue. Robert Finberg is a physician who specializes in infectious diseases and immunology at the medical school at the University of Massachusetts, and he joins us now. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Thank you. Good to talk to you. So I guess uh, just first of all, that sentiment that a lot of people seem to have, that when, oh my goodness, I've got chills or I've got a headache, that's great. The vaccine is working. That's not true, is it? No, the bottom line is that there are two kinds of immunity uh, that we make. One is uh, what's called innate immunity, uh, and that's the the first time you see something, Mm -hmm. uh, you have an inflammatory response, which involves some white cells, like what's called polymorphonuclear leukocytes, uh, and they come to the site of uh, inflammation, and that can cause, that's what usually causes pain. Um, And it can also cause uh, local swelling and other side effects. What protects you against the virus is so-called adaptive immunity, and that's what's generated by B and T cells. Those are different kinds of white cells. And that comes after you've been uh, seen a virus or an antigen before uh, and get a recall. But but the um, inflammatory response and the thing that causes fever, um, that's not the thing that protects you. I mean, like... I mean, to take it to the extreme, you could get a sliver, and in some people that will bring on the same sort of a a response, right? Right. So you can get a splinter, and you can get a nasty reaction to that, and you can get pain and fever, uh, but that doesn't give you any protection. Uh, That's just a, uh, that's the innate immune response, these uh, cells called phagocytes that eat the uh, foreign particles. The, the, The immune response that's important in protection comes from these other cells, the T and B cells that circulate in your blood, and they don't necessarily, getting a uh, response to, of uh, T and B cells is not necessarily associated with fever uh, or pain. Um, 
So a lot of people wondering what they should expect. You know, what is normal? And like we've said, you know, fever, maybe a headache, uh, pain at the site. What kind of things, are, are, is that the the universe of, you know, things you should expect after you've been vaccinated? Are there other things that are pretty typical that people shouldn't be too alarmed by? Yeah, I mean, the CDC uh, in the U.S., uh, after looking at a month of actual vaccines, these are real-world experiences that uh, people in the wild, uh, as opposed to uh, studies, and they found that uh, over 70% of people get pain at the injection site. Well, Mm. that's not surprising. You're sticking a needle there. (laughs) Uh, About about 20 to 30% also have uh, fatigue. Uh, They just don't feel well. And, you know, headache, um, muscle aches are are common. Uh, Maybe 10% get fever, chills, uh, and then the rest are uh, some injection site swelling, joint pain, uh, nausea. Those That kind of rounds it out, but those are about 10% or less. Okay. So that's what you should expect. All right. What is it in the vaccine that causes that? I mean, is it any foreign substance that enters your body? Is there something specific in a vaccine that causes that reaction in some people? So it does vary from vaccine to vaccines. Uh, some vaccines uh, that don't have uh, other things in them don't cause any reaction at all. Usually people, for example, that get measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, which is just has the viruses, don't get a reaction. On the other hand, uh, things that are done to boost immunity uh, will lead to, re- to reactions. The Shingrix vaccine, for example, has an adjuvant uh, that causes a, uh, a reaction in a lot of people. And these vac- the uh, mRNA vaccines have lipid formulations uh, that some people react to. Um, okay, so the bottom line and the crux of the discussion here is you cannot have any indication as to how immune you will be as a result of the vaccine based on this initial reaction to the needle, right? There, that doesn't give that, you any is, indication. That is correct. So what we know uh, from the trials is that the overwhelming majority of people will uh, get a response to the vaccine. And furthermore, that response is actually protective uh, against a challenge with the virus. They will not get the virus. And yet, many of those people do not have uh, side effects or certainly not a severe response to the the vaccine. Is there any way to gauge how effective the vaccine has been? We know it's like 95% uh, effective for some of them. Effective, right, right. Uh, yeah, I mean, antibodies, um, you can measure antibodies, which is what the B cells make, uh, and there is a correlation between the uh, production of antibodies and uh, the protection against the, uh, getting COVID. Uh, one last question before I let you go here, and I don't know, uh, this isn't what we talked about, but uh, maybe you have some insight. If not, that's fine. The, the blood clotting that we keep hearing about with J&J and with AstraZeneca, what causes that? Have they been able to link that back to anything in terms of what the vaccine does and um, what kind of a risk does that carry? Uh, we know it's infinitesimal, right? Right. There was a lot of questions in there. Uh, there's some theories about w- uh, why that might happen and whether that's related to the uh, adenovirus, which is uh, the vector for those two vaccines. We don't know for certain. And as you said, though, these are one in a million uh, yeah. possibilities. These are very rare events. Okay. Last question. I lied. I have one more. Uh, does what you uh, saw as a reaction to your first shot have any bearing on what kind of reaction you'll see for your second shot? Most people are, people are more react, are more likely to react at the second shot, but that isn't uniformly true. Okay, good stuff. Great insight. Thank you, doctor. I appreciate your time.
Good to talk to you. Thank you. Bye. There you go, Dr. Robert Finberg, who is a physician who specializes in infectious diseases and immunology at the medical school at the University of Massachusetts. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.